in case you're just visiting or you need just a little bit of a reminder of, of what we're doing and, and where we're at, the book of Judges records, it's an Old Testament book, and it records how God raised up a series of judges, or you could even translate that word deliverers, to rescue his ancient people Israel from their enemies. And uh, the last place we were was chapter 6 of Judges, where we learned about this guy, this judge named Gideon. And we learned about how in Gideon's day, Israel, God's people, had lost peace. But we also learned how God was making a perfect path to a prevailing peace. And that peace would eventually lead to the arrival of the Prince of Peace, Jesus, whose coming uh, we celebrate in a special way this time of year, the one who brings peace uh, for all of us who need it so much in our lives. We left off last time with those signs of the fleece that Gideon requested before he felt strong enough and encouraged enough in God to go to battle against God's enemies. Judges 7, beginning at verse 1. Early in the morning, Jerubbabel, Jerub Baal, that is Gideon, and you remember what Jerub Baal means? Baal was the major false god of Canaan that people were worshiping, and they shouldn't have been. Jerob Baal means one who contends with Baal. So that's what he was known as. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped in the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian, that's their enemies, was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me, that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. And so 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. And so Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. And so Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below them in the valley. And during the night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. And so he and Pura, his servant, 
went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. It's about 10 o'clock, just after they had changed the guard. And they blew their trumpets, broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran crying out as they fled. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And the army fled to Beth Shittah toward Zerorah as far as the border of Abel Mahola near Tabith. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. And so all the men of Ephraim were called out and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. And they also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. That's God's reading for us this morning. So right at the beginning of, that cha- of our chapter in verse 2, a really key biblical principle comes up, and it's the principle of God's strength in our weakness. And, and we, we read there about how God doesn't want the people to boast in their strength that they could save themselves right? Paul would later write in the New Testament that God actually made him weak by giving him a thorn in the flesh so that he could learn that God's grace was sufficient. And and, and what, what we've read in this chapter is really an example of what's spelled out. It's like an illustration of what Paul says there, that God made him weak so that God's grace could abound. Um, God demonstrates his strength, his strategy, and he enacts his battle plan. And he wants to show us how deliverance, salvation, uh, can only come from him. 
and, and he demonstrates, he shows this in a stirring way. It's a heart-lifting portrayal of God's power in the face of man's weakness. And this is the way God often works. We read it in many places throughout Scripture. I've certainly seen it in my life, in all of my weaknesses. Uh, but what I want to do is, is, is share a striking example that goes to the year 1740, when there was a revival in a church in Cambuslang, Scotland. And the minister, William McCulloch, was given by the congregation um, a very interesting nickname. He was called an ale minister, A-L-E minister. Why? Well, because when he got up to the pulpit to preach, uh, a number of his congregants would leave and head to the local tavern. If I ever hear through the grapevine that nickname for me, I'll know something is going very wrong. So the pastor's son described his father, um, wasn't trying to sugarcoat or stick up for his dad, I guess, as not a very ready speaker, not eloquent. His manner was very slow and cautious. However, a great revival started in his congregation. And as someone wrote about it a little bit later, God seems to have been pleased to use him, this ale minister, to make clear that the work could not be explained by eloquence or human dynamism, human power, but it could only have happened through the Spirit of God. Um, and God often uses the, the weak things of the world so that he gets the glory, so that we don't boast in ourselves, and so that we see that and turn to him for his power and grace uh, that we so desperately need. And that power and grace is not something that even the strongest of us are super weak compared to God. We can't provide that, so it makes us turn to him. Um, we see this principle in God's screening, this bigger principle, in God's screening or the winnowing process before the battle that we first read about. And then we also see it in the battle in the victory itself. I'm calling this covenant screening because the process goes back to the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the covenant where God taught his people how to live in the special relationship that he initiated with them. In chapter 20, God gives, actually, a covenant procedure for entering a battle. Looking at what God commands Gideon here uh, through the lens of our relationship with God, um, we find three categories of, of, I'm calling them cadets, three categories of cadets, but they're not the cadets, the type of cadets who served us so well that awesome meal yesterday morning. I'm using cadet in the sense of, of a soldier, right? Um, first, we have the faith but cadets. Following Deuteronomy, this is in Deuteronomy 20, God tells Gideon to invite any fearful soldiers to go back home. 22,000 of the 32,000 are wimps, and they do that. 
left with 10,000. Now, the 32,000 was already no match for the Midianite army of, I think it was 120,000 plus. But God said, no, 32,000 is too much for my plan. And, 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 and so what's, what is the deal with the ones who left? Well, they had enough faith to respond to Gideon's call to fight, but when they were actually called to do battle, their faith was very weak. It was a wimpy faith in the end. They had faith, but faith, but not to enter battle. They're like, I didn't expect this. Our little group against all them? We've only got this many? No way. You know, it's kind of like joining the church, giving your heart to Jesus, uh, professing your faith, but then when spiritual warfare comes, you wilt, and you're like, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. You might be thinking, hey, if I do the right thing, committing to the Lord, boy, then it'd be like moving to easy street, when in fact, it's like the opposite. The Bible talks about suffering and spiritual war against our own sin, the world, the devil, all of that kicks in when we believe in Jesus. The next level of screening weeded out the faith me cadets. So 10,000 was still too much for God's plan, right? And, and, and so Gideon took the 10,000 down to the water. 300 lapped the water. We read with their hands to their mouths. 9,700, the rest, got down on their knees to drink. God kept only the 300. So why would that be? Well, it seems that the 300 were drinking with a view toward the upcoming battle. Kneeling, the others were not battle ready. The huge, bigger group seems to have been just focusing on the water and satisfying themselves. And, and this is a difference between a me and Jesus faith and a faith that has a view toward service. You know, it, it would be like leaving worship at faith and saying to yourself, ah, what a wonderful sermon. Like everyone thinks when they leave every single worship service at faith. Or to say, ah, what, what nice music. I sure feel refreshed from meeting Jesus, the living water. But then that's it. The reality is a real living faith is not just me and Jesus, but it asks, how does this make me more alert for spiritual warfare in my life and in the world? How does this make me ready for service. How now, like we saw during the offering and, and heard from Ray at the beginning of the service, how now can I bless and reach others beyond just satisfying myself? How can I be an active Christian in every area of my life to drink, to take in, yes, but for the purpose of service? Those are the 300 that God used. Let's call them the faithful cadets. Though just a handful, God could do great 
things through them because for them it was about him and putting their trust and faith in him. And so we might ask ourselves, like pause just a minute and say, how, well, how is my faith? Do I have a faith but, a cowardly faith, one that throws in the towel when hard times or suffering hit? Do I have a faith me? It's all about me and Jesus. What can I get? How can I be satisfied spiritually? And then it stops there. Or am I faithful? Is my faith with a view to service? That's where we want to be. And we see what God does with just a small group of those who put their faith in him. And it's just incredible what happens. From the covenant screening, we see the covenant spectacle. And it is absolutely spectacular. God encourages Gideon to take his servant in the night to sneak into the enemy camp. I don't know if, you, if you're sort of familiar with the story of Gideon. I don't, maybe I wonder if you remembered about this. So he does. It's spectacular that they don't get caught, even though they're in the midst of the camp, they're right outside a tent even. It's spectacular that Gideon just happened to arrive as man, a man was telling his friend about this unusual dream. And of course, God planned it that way, right? It didn't just happen this dream of a loaf of barley bread that tumbled into the camp and hit a tent and the significance of that um the guy explains but barley was sort of the basic crop of the israelite farmers so that barley loaf would represent israel the midianites were nomads and so they were always setting up tents taking them down moving places so the tent represented midian and, and, and the guy says, hey, this means that God has given us into Gideon's hands. So you can just imagine the assurance and the courage that this gave to Gideon. And in response, he immediately bows down to worship God. He goes back to the Israelite camp. And he's like, hey, let's do this thing. We're going to do it. God's with us. And then Gideon divides his 300 right into three groups. They stood on the hills surrounding the enemy camped down in the valley. The soldiers had trumpets and pottery and torches, all left behind by the faith me soldiers who God sent home. At Gideon's lead, uh, they blew their trumpets, smashed the jars, gave the shout for the Lord and for Gideon. That little faithful group, the Lord did something spectacular with them. He caused the enemy to be confused. They turned on each other with their swords. It was spectacular that they killed their own troops for Israel. And then plus Israel killed uh, two of their kings. It, this might be the most spectacular defeat and glorious victory in the Bible. It's certainly one of the most unusual. And it makes us think... Wow, look at what God can do. Wow, look at what God has done. But when we turn to what happens afterwards, which, uh, we, also, which we didn't read, we stopped in 7. If you read after that in chapter 8 and 9, though, you will also say wow, but for a different reason. And it's because the response 
of God's people is so sad. It's so bad. It's tragic. I'm going to summarize what happened, um, but it's basically a heartbreaking betrayal of the Lord and, and his servant Gideon who, who accomplished all this for them. We see the tragic response in God's people as a whole. We read about Ephraim, a tribe who wasn't part of the battle. Now that there's victory, they're really bitter that they're not getting in on the glory. And 8 verse 1 says they criticize Gideon sharply. And so they compl- a whole chunk of God's people completely missed the whole point. It wasn't about them and how great they were, but it was for God's glory. And they're like, hey, give us some of the glory that you guys are getting. And so other people in the towns here, I'm trying to find the name of them again. Secondly, what happened, besides that issue with Ephraim, two individual towns, Sukoth and Peniel, this is into chapter 8, they, um, they do not give Gideon and the 300 food. They're chasing two more kings of Midian, and these kings are completely ahead of them. The army is worn out, very tired, and they're like, we're not going to give you food. And they do that because... Um, they're scared that the enemy is going to regroup and punish them for feeding Gideon and his band. So Ephraim was selfishly concerned about its status. The two towns were concerned about their security. Even worse than all that, tragic is what happens in Gideon's life after all of this. Initially, the people after the big victory are like, hey, we want to make you king. Wrong focus. And Gideon recognizes that and says, no, God's our king. But then he says that, but then his actions show something totally different. Like a typical king of the day, and this is the second half of chapter 8, he asks for a share of the plunder from the 300, they give him a share, it's, all, it's gold and some other stuff, but it results in like 70 pounds of gold, and he fashions like an idol of all things with the 70 pounds of gold. He sets it up in his hometown of Ophrah for people uh, to worship And we read in the Bible that it became a snare to Gideon and his whole family, in addition to a a snare for all of Israel and the whole town. It's unbelievable because earlier Gideon, if you remember, was the great reformer of his village. He tore down idols, and now he's slipped back into false worship. This guy who was nicknamed Jerob Baal, contender of Baal, ends his life poorly by giving his allegiance not to God alone, but also to Baal, even after this spectacular display of God's power and strength. And this all spilled over into his family life. We read that he ended up with 70 sons, and it took 
a, him taking a bunch of wives to have 70 sons, um, totally how any pagan Near Eastern monarch would do. All tons of wives and concubines and totally against God's will for leaders. One of those sons, Abimelech, we read in chapter 9, kills all the other sons as he tries to take power, and then he dies really tragically when a woman uh, throws somehow a millstone from a roof where he's uh, passing by, and he dies that way. You know, earlier when we were talking about the fleece with Gideon, we, we maybe, I, I wonder if we were cutting him a little too much slack. Because I was reading it, and we were saying, well, this could be, you know, Gideon just wants, he asked for the sign of the fleece, then he asked for it again in the other way, and it's kind of like, is that a weak faith? And I was suggesting, well, not necessarily. It could be he just wants further encouragement. He asks for a nature miracle to know who for sure is with him, the sovereign God of all nature, and he's stronger than all these little nature gods like Baal and Asherah. And so he's just trying to know God better. But given this ending to his life, maybe that was cutting him too much slack. Maybe there was a critical flaw in Gideon's heart and faith all along. And that's why he needed all those extra signs, like extra crutches to move forward. And in God's word to say, I'm with you, wasn't enough. And, and so it's all, it's a very tragic ending. You know, we think of the stirring story of Gideon and his faith, uh, but it ends so poorly, and, and there's a real reason that the judges, this book of Judges, are considered, uh, it's considered the dark ages of the Bible. It's so sad after everything, so bad, so much darkness, and it, it's like um, after every judge, like, like a, a deep fog, a, a, an endless night, had settled over Israel. But then, when we look into that darkness, a little more carefully, we see that there's more there. In the midst of the darkness, there's a light shining of the coming Christ, and it's the star of Bethlehem. We read that angels would appear to proclaim his coming in the dead of night and in the darkness of our lives. Over time, going forward from here, God would winnow down the whole nation of Israel. Ten of the twelve tribes would be taken off by the Assyrians, never to be heard of again. And then just two tribes were left, Judah and Benjamin. And then finally, only one tribe, Judah. God brought it all the way down as the Old Testament goes on to just the 300. And out of that small group, the remnant, the faithful one would come to set things right. Uh, the bread of life from Bethlehem, and Bethlehem means house of bread. 
The bread of life from Bethlehem would come rolling into history, and at the cross, he'd crush the head of Satan, the ultimate enemy of God and his people. And now at the cross, we can find full forgiveness. You can, I can, for all our faith issues. Forgiveness for our faith but fears. Forgiveness for our faith me lifestyles and attitudes, sometimes even in the family of God. And in Jesus, we have resurrection power as he has sent his Holy Spirit to make us faithful like himself. And so uh, the question is, are, are you part of Gideon's band? Are you part of Gideon's band? Or is it possible that you're coming to Christmas but somehow missing God's spectacular love and deliverance and grace in our intense need? Uh, the Bible says, you know, that the heart of many will grow cold as the end of time approaches. And of course, we're getting near to that end every day. And, and so we don't want our hearts to be growing cold. And, and so I invite you to, to check your heart. Check your life. Be sure that you've stepped up to be a faithful soldier. Be sure you're giving your allegiance and glory to the heavenly captain, Jesus. Because you know what? I look, I look around the world and I hear the news and it's getting scary out there. But in Jesus, in our weakness, we can defy the odds. We can overcome fear and selfish tendencies and instead serve our covenant God and work and pray for his kingdom light to shine today. And so look to Bethlehem's star in the dark darkest night of this world. Look to Bethlehem's star in your own darkness. Friends, be sure that you've joined Gideon's band of the faithful. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, as, as we've uh, read and heard your word this morning, I pray that um, it would encourage us to indeed examine our hearts as we see those different categories of soldiers, of cadets, and uh, how God could use and work with those 300 who were not selfish in their faith, who were concerned for service, who, oh God, uh, did not fear because they knew it wasn't about them anyway, but about you, God, and your greatness and your strength. Oh Lord, um, forgive us for our weak faith. Forgive us for our selfish faith. Make us faithful uh, in the faithful one, Jesus, as, as we turn uh, to his light today, this season, and from there, shine it out for so many uh, who need him. In his name we pray, amen.